Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 299 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today will help you lead like never before. We are uh, quickly approaching 300. Isn't that amazing? And I am so thrilled to have Pat Lencioni back on the podcast. So I flew to San Francisco for this to uh, visit Pat in his offices. It was the first time I've ever been there. Met his team. I've I've met his team on the road at different points. And of course, Pat. Uh, But to be able to hang out with him for the better part of an afternoon and capture what I think is one of my favorite interviews. This one has been great. So we're sitting literally around the table at the table group. And uh, Pat has influenced my leadership for over a decade, decade and a half. I started reading his books when he first started writing. And my goodness, we're 10 minutes into this interview and Pat starts talking about a crash he had 11 years ago. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think I knew about that. And so we went there. And I think you're going to love this interview, you know, because the myth is, here's the myth, guys. Everybody thinks it's so easy for everyone else and it's so hard for me. And that's just not true. Most leaders who are very successful have come through some incredibly difficult times. And Pat opens up about that. Plus, we also talk about the motive of leadership. I walk through The Temptations of a CEO, one of his first books, if not the first book. And uh, Pat Lencioni, as you probably know, is a widely recognized leadership and business expert. He has sold over 6 million books. And we'll talk about this in uh, the interview, but he says he's got this new book called The Motive. Well, anyway, when I left the offices, Pat gave me a copy of that book. It was literally a Sherlock's bound, like, you know, printed out copy, not from the publisher, but from their office. And I read it on the flight home and I'll tell you, it's exceptional. I can't wait for you guys to get uh, your hands on this. It's available for pre-order if you're wondering about that. So uh, all that to say, I'm just thrilled you're listening today. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for letting other people know about this podcast. We continue to see more downloads than ever, and we're approaching our 10 million download giveaway. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Also have some incredible guests. You can subscribe for free. Do that wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got uh, the Ask Carrie feature. Today, I'm tackling a question from Jamal who wants to know, are senior leadership principles different from, say, if you're an associate or just starting out? Great question. Going to get to that at the very end of the show. And in the meantime, uh, have you ever looked at your health insurance summary of benefits for your faith-based organization had no idea what you're reading? Well, you're not alone. They can be confusing and expensive. And so that's why I love what Remodel Health is doing. They have poured back over $7 million into not-for-profits bottom line by saving them on healthcare. And saving on healthcare with Remodel Health doesn't mean, hey, everybody, we got like worse benefits next year. Actually, the benefits often improve or at minimum stay the same. And if you're interested, podcast listeners of this show have already saved over $625,000 that they plowed right back into their mission And if you want more, go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to learn more. You get a free health insurance buyer's guide, which will help you cut through the fog. And they're happy to talk to you about that too. And also, because 2020 is right around the corner, you know the grind of having to deliver fresh content week after week after week. I mean, I... 
pastors have it so different than other people if you're a pastor listening. Because so many people, like if you're a speaker, it's like, well, you use the same talk over and over again. And every once in a while, you write a new one. Nope. Not so when it comes to preaching. Well, how about preaching through the red letter challenge in 2020? It's something that 60,000 people have already completed. It's a 40-day church campaign. And every pastor that's used it so far has recommended it. Churches that have used the red letter challenge have seen small groups grow by an average of 40%. It's a turnkey program, and here's what happens. It's your sermon outlines done for you. It's small group curriculum done for you. It's graphics done for you, all based on the teaching of Jesus. Plus, there's now even a Red Letter Challenge Kids workbook, so you can run everybody through it. So this works whether you're leading a small group and you need 10 copies or whether you're leading a very large church and you need 1,000 or more. So if you go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry, there are packages based on your church size ready to go. The link will get you between 10 and 40% off depending on size, and they would love to help you. So go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry and join the growing number of churches that are really focusing in on the red letters, the teachings of Jesus, which by the way, are really popular with unchurched people too, if you're into evangelism like I am. So anyway, that's uh, those are some of our partners today and the offers that they have for you. And in the meantime, I am so thrilled to bring you uh, one of my favorite leaders, Patrick Lencioni, and our conversation that we had together at the Table Group in San Francisco. Well, Pat, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here, Carrie. It's uh it's just great that our paths cross and we have so much in common. So it's we do. fun. We just had a, a fascinating conversation about the church and oh. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And we're here at the table group. Yes. World headquarters. Yes. And I'm proud to say I'm an evangelical Catholic. And yeah. So we, and we actually know, have a lot of we have priests in common and other people in the, in the church, Catholic and non-Catholic in common. And there's something moving. It's really good. It is. It is really good. I hope we can get to that. Uh, Maybe we'll save it for the end. But it's fascinating here because uh, I've been reading your books for decades, as you know, and to actually be at the table group is a real honor. So thanks for opening this up. And we're sitting literally at the table. At the table. And this is where we do our podcast. So it's really fun. You just got into podcasting. We were talking about that uh, last month when we were at Global Leadership Summit. Yes. And uh, it is binge worthy. You've got six episodes. So it's easy. Seven or eight now? I think we put up the seventh. Um, earlier yeah. this week and another one's going up soon. Yeah, but that's great. So we're at the table of, of the table group, yep. which is good. Pat, I want to go back to the beginning of sort of the first book you you wrote that put you on the map because I think these issues are eternal. And so we have a lot of leaders who are listening to this podcast. And I want to talk about the five temptations of the CEO. And I think what really surprised me most is I was pretty sure when I first read that book that it was going to be about greed and everything. But you surfaced a bunch of other stuff that a lot of us don't think about that was pretty deeply convicting. Yeah, you know, I didn't plan on writing a book. Yeah. I, uh, I was just working in a company and, and doing some moonlighting in other companies, working with the CEOs of smaller companies because I was a consultant at heart. And in working with all these different leaders, I started to notice behavioral tendencies that they had that were making things problematic for their organizations. And the first one, I, I, I wasn't even thinking about a model. I said, that he just doesn't care enough about results. He's just all about ego. And then I was like, wait, this guy over here though, he cares about results, but he's, oh, he doesn't like to, he doesn't actually like to push his people that work for him and hold mm. them accountable. What about this guy over here? He's not, and, and after I found that there were five. And so I just shared that with some of my clients and the other people that worked with me in the organization. A year later, a guy came back and wrote those five things on the board. 
And I said, hey, where'd you hear about that? He goes, from you a year ago. And I was like, so you think it works? Oh yeah, it works. And you should write a book about this because somebody else is going to. <laughs> so I decided I would tap into my, my fiction writing skills. I was a screenwriting, I, I took a screenwriting class in college. And so I wrote what was, is more like a screenplay yeah. about a fictitious CEO and what happens. I wrote that. I didn't think it would ever get published. We started our firm. Somebody's fr best friend's brother-in-law's sister read it and she worked at a publishing house and she said, we want to sign this. We think it's good. And I was like, wow, you're going to pay me to print this for me. This is <laughs> awesome. And it went from there. That's incredible. And how many uh, books later and how many copies later? I think 11, I was just at a talk yesterday and they introduced me and I think what they say, I have 11 books mm -hmm. and I think it's a 6 million sold. Wow. And uh, we have another one coming up, which will be the 12th. And all but two are fiction. Yeah. I have one called The Advantage, which is like a classic business book. And then one which is more like a, a workbook that sells a lot. It's about how to overcome team dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk about those temptations. And you talked about the first one, which was so paradoxical to me because you think you become CEO, senior leader, senior pastor, whatever your title is, but you finally get to the place where you either start or get promoted to being in charge of an organization. And you said the first temptation is to stop really caring about the mission or results, which yep. is weird. And results is not just money. Right. Results is whatever we're trying to achieve. And, and, and again, I was working with a leader who, who, thank God for him, he showed me this. He, the company he was leading, a public company, would, would fail to make its numbers. Yeah. And honestly, we would think he's going to be in a terrible mood. We'd go in and see him in his office and he'd be in a great mood because he went on CNBC and they asked him about it and he looked really good and he, they liked him and people were like, man, you did a great job. And he was able to blame it on some economic downturn or something else. And as long as it didn't make him look bad personally, he was really happy. And I thought, <laughs> oh no, I'm at the wrong company because this guy really doesn't care about what he's supposed to care about. It's about his career, his status, his, his public image. And there's frankly a lot more people like that than I ever would have imagined. And the paradox, Pat, is it's the drive over results. So your argument is when they're younger and in the organization at a lower level, they're like, results, results, results. Look at this quarter, look at the stats. Because the they have to to survive. Right then they get to the top and all of a sudden it's about image. Well, what it comes down to is why were they working so hard all those years? Yeah. And for many of them, if you ask them, and this is what my next book is next, that's coming out next mm -hmm. spring is about, it's what was he motivated by? The book is called The Motive. Are you motivated because one day you want to get someplace where you can finally do things on your own terms? Right. Or are you motivated by serving and, and one day wanting to be in charge so you can love on more people and help them achieve their goals. And there's a truckload of people in politics, in sports, and in business whose goal is to make it so they can finally be the king. Is that conscious or subconscious? Um, it's definitely not, not overtly conscious. Mm -hmm. But if you, when you ask them, the, the, the early readers of my book have been shocked at how much they, they, it, it moves people to evaluate themselves. Yeah. So I think it's not overtly conscious, but when a person actually looks at it, it's pretty easy for them to go, oh crap, that's me. Yeah, I, and I've, I haven't read the book yet. I can't wait to get my hands on it. We'll give you a, a early copy. As you I, will, I will read it on the flight <laughs> right. to Phoenix tomorrow. That'll be fantastic, Pat. I gotta, I gotta tell you, like, I have questioned my motives over and over and over again, just being totally transparent well, about it. Well, we all it. slip. Oh, yeah. 
But I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And some days I have a good answer and some days I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, and I guess my, my question is on the motive. How do you know whether your motives, because I want to talk about that anyway, but was, might as well go there because it's the first temptation. Right. Right. How do I know that my motives are pure? How do I know that they're right? Well, and I'm, what I'm about to say, I believe, I don't do it every day, although I'm trying to start. Yeah. I think that as a follower of Jesus, I need to wake up every day and let him order my day hmm. in terms of what I choose to work on and why. Yeah. I heard a great speaker yesterday say, if you understand your why, you'll endure any how. This was this guy named John O'Leary. Yeah, who, that we who, were talking about. Yeah, yeah, you were on his podcast. And the thing is, we have to wake up every day if you're a follower of Jesus and say, I want to do what you want me to do for you, not for me. Right. You know, for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, not mine. Mm. So if we can check ourselves that way, but if we forget to do that over time, even the most well-intentioned person slips and starts to get caught up in, well, what is this day going to do for me? Or what is this week going to do for me? Or maybe my, the reason I like this job is because it makes me well-known or popular or people recognize me. And that's super, super dangerous. So it's almost a daily stripping away of, because it, otherwise it attaches. How have you dealt with that? I mean, you've been extremely successful. Millions and millions of books, uh, a very influential leadership ministry, you could say, or group, consulting right. group. How do you guard that on, in your own heart? It has been a, an annual and monthly and weekly and daily and hour by hour struggle. And what I mean by that is because you get caught up in things and oh, the yeah. world tells you, you should be enjoying this and you should enjoy it, but in the proper perspective. But there's been times in my life where I think that I kind of lost sight of it and I actually crashed and burned about 11 years ago. Okay. And I think it was because I was, you know, you have a lot of faithful people that listen to this, right? Yeah, so yeah, I talk yeah. About my business faith, and, okay. and, and faith good. leaders. So, so, you know, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Right. Which is really mammon, the world, and God. And I was going to prove that I could do both. Oh, wow. You know, and that's the danger, right? And I was like, no, I can be humble servant in my work, but also, hey, this is pretty cool that this is going well. And if you try to do both, you're gonna, what he says, you're gonna hate the one and love the other or vice versa. And I got to the point where I, I was like, God, I don't want to care about the worldly stuff anymore. Hmm. I know that it's, it's preventing me from being happy, from having peace. And I actually went and sat, kneeled down after communion at mass one day and prayed that he would humble me. And I, when hmm. I say that, I mean, I was, Humble on the outside, but deep down inside, I valued it too much. And I felt him say, are you sure? Because oh, it's wow. going to be really painful for you. I really felt that. Wow. And I, I felt like Peter, like, where else can I go? I mean, yeah, I, I have to do it. And I went through a year or two of, of, of ebb and flow depression because I was losing my, my ability to enjoy it for the right reasons. And I got to a place where I just finally bottomed out and I said, I can't do this anymore. I don't, I, I'm getting no joy out of any of this from family, from work, from writing, from anything. And it was then that I was totally on my knees, totally empty. And I said, okay, God, you save me. I can't do this on my own. It's not my will. It's not my humility. It's not my, my virtue. It's all about you. And since then, I've been coming back from that. And it's wow. a whole different world. And I still have to avoid it attaching to me. But that was when I, I, I bottomed out. And I'm so thankful that it happened. And I hope I never go through it again. Can, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, and I'm somebody who's been very public about it, it was 13 years ago for me. We're the same age. But 13 ah. years ago for me, I went through this incredible 
burnout. So you're speaking to a fellow survivor. Wow. Um, and a lot of that was God ripping away at my ambition, ripping yep. away. I was right around 40 yep. and uh, like I think 41. Can you take us back to the extent that you're comfortable sharing to the narrative in say 12 years ago, like what was going through your head? Like, oh, this is really awesome, but I'm really trying to be pure about my motive. Can you take us back to the narrative before you hit the crash? What kind of surfaced during the crash and then how you've dealt with it since? Like just kind of take us through that. You know what's interesting? Yeah. What what? I would say is, so I never cheated on my wife. Yeah. Thank you, God. Yes. (laughs) I never took drugs or started drinking or gambling but I have total empathy for people who have done all of those things because, yes, because when we do those things, we do them out of emptiness. Mm-hmm. And I think God knew I was not strong enough to endure that. So he prevented me, from, but he said, I'm going to let you feel the same amount of emptiness and pain as a person who did those things. And, but I'm not, I don't think you can come back from that. I think you're too frail because that would have crushed my, me. Yeah. And so what was going on in my life on the outside, no one would have known. Hmm. No one would have known. And I was on top of the world. And yet what, I, what was going on with me is any disappointment that I experienced, some of the most minor stupid things you would imagine, and people would say, why are you so bummed out? Because something little happened to you that was bad. And it was because I had become so addicted to success yeah. that it had all become about avoiding failure and there was oh. no joy in the upside anymore. So like little things would go wrong and my, my world would fall apart. And people would say, why are you so focused on that one like, thing? Like what would be a little thing that unraveled it's, I'm it. almost like, okay, no. okay, I'll tell you. I was, I was coaching um, my son's soccer team. Yeah. And who cares if your son's soccer team wins or loses? But if they lost a game that they shouldn't have lost, I would be beside myself. I mean, and I know people now, like their fantasy football team does poorly. Right. And they're pissed off at Aaron Rodgers of the Packers. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, you, you realize you have God and that's, he's all that matters. You know, your wife loves you, right? Right. You know, your kids love you. You know, you're, you've got a home, a roof over your head. But when we are not living for the right thing, even the smallest setbacks can throw us for a loop. And that was God's way of humiliating me and humbling me. But I was humiliated that I am feeling a lack of peace because we lost a soccer game and my kids were 11. That was my alcoholism, drug addiction, cheating on my wife, gambling, caring about something that didn't, that was worldly. That was my, that was the thing that, that pierced me. Hmm. And there were other things like that, but that's the most humiliating and, and crazy one. And my wife would be talking to me going, you realize that doesn't matter. And I'm like, I know it, but why am I so empty? And the answer was, because you don't see yourself as a child of God and he makes you who you are, not your status as a soccer coach, a, even a parent. You know, sometimes your kids are down on you yeah. and you have to go, that's okay. What was so seductive about success prior to that moment? I don't, I think that, like any addiction, I'm convinced that all of life is addiction. Hmm. If you, if, when you're not right. Yeah. For me, that's right with God. Hmm. I think that's true for everybody, but you know, and I think it wasn't seductive. It was, I needed it. You know what the definition of an addiction is? You need more and more of it to feel less and less happy. Oh, wow. Cause you know, at some point a person's like addicted to drugs or sex. Yeah. They're not getting pleasure from it. Right. They need it to avoid being completely desperate. Hmm. And I think 
so it wasn't that success was addicting to me. It was the lack of it seemed intolerable. So it wasn't like if my kids won the championship game. I mean, I can't even believe I'm saying this because it's so embarrassing. No, I, I, I get it. And it wasn't that I would be like, yes, we won. I'd be <laughs> like, okay, good. That one went well. What's next? See, so there wasn't even like happiness in the victory. Oh, no. Most people I know that are wildly successful athletes and these people that fall yeah. off the cliff, they don't, you know, like they've asked these athletes. Mike Singletary was the coach of the, uh, of the Bears. Yeah. And then he played for the, no, he played for the Bears, was the coach of the 49ers. And I actually got to meet him a few times. And he was a very quiet guy, very humble guy. And he came to his faith when they won the Super Bowl. And he said, and he was so unhappy. He said, is that it? Is that all? Wow. And you talk to people that have had huge successes in their life and they almost always go into a really deep depression. Yeah. Because they're like, I thought that would make me happy. So you have a choice at that point to get on your knees and, 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 and rid yourself of all that and say, this isn't going to work or to go for more. And so many people keep doubling down. And, and, and eventually it's totally empty. Just, Justin Bieber, I just, of yeah. all people, was just having this. And he just said... He just needed more and more and got more and more miserable and started treating people poorly and feeling terrible about himself the more successful he got. And what I always tell people is the best thing that happened to me by succeeding was realizing that it doesn't satisfy. Wow. And I just want to tell people that, are, that think that they're just one rung on the ladder away from being happy or two rungs away that I've been there and it's not what you think it is. So please climb back down the ladder and find it where it really is. If um, <clears throat> I want to talk about the downward spiral, because statistically, we're going to have X percentage of listeners, leaders listening, who are right at that point where you were 11 years ago, oh. or I was 13 years ago. Oh. What, what was that like? What did it feel like? And what were some of the ways you started to recover or move through it? Well, I would say the number one feeling I had was terror or fear. It was the scariest I'd ever been in the world because all these fake underpinnings of my success or my stability were gone. And, and all I said was, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Henry Cloud was a is a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I love Henry. Mm -hmm. And I, in a desperate call, I called him to get his advice and he's helped me since then. And other people have. And I remember I got a hold of this priest friend of mine. Yeah. And I said, I don't know what's going on. I feel I, I'm totally scared. And he said, well, you know, God loves you. And I said, I don't feel it. And he said, well, I'm here in his place to tell you that he does. Oh, wow. And I collapsed onto the floor in tears. And, and it was the most like liberating and terrifying experience I'd ever had. So I've never been so scared in my life. I've been in other situations where that should have been scarier that I was like, well, this is okay. That was the point where I was staring into the abyss realizing none of this is me. I can't do this on my own. And until we get to that place of total submission and surrender, man, we're just, we're just white knuckling it. Wow. I should say that's what, how I felt. I'd been white knuckling my whole life and I needed to truly bottom out. Was it imposter syndrome or was it- There was certainly that. that. Yeah. There was certainly that. Um, who am I? And there was also just like, when do I, when is this over? When do I feel like I can rest? <sighs> you know, what did St. Augustine say? Our hearts will not rest until they rest in God. I am oh. a testament to that. My- Everyone else, I remember I was talking to my brother and he was kind of down and I was telling him when I was going through this, he goes, oh, if I were you, I wouldn't have any problems. I'm look at you, you have a great wife and your kids and you, you make pretty good money and you, your job is good. I mean, what do you have to complain about? I was like, I know. So why am I so miserable? 
And it was my, I had a big hole in my heart that I wasn't really allowing God to fill and allowing myself to feel his love. When you, if you can take yourself back to that point 11 years ago. Wow, and you I, this is, I should future. be paying you for therapy. This is awesome. I, I don't know. I've, I've just, no, you're just sent that you're comfortable Nobody's ever extracted this from me like this. So this is fantastic. Well, having been there. I yeah, mean, you're right. Yes. Having been there, I, I get it. Oh, and yeah. I want to know if you're comfortable. What was it like, Pat, to be at that bottom, to be terrified? Did you look into the future and worry that all this stuff was going to go away? Did you hope it would go away? Well, here's the thing. And you know, the fear is that it will never go away. Right. It's like, I'm okay suffering. And that's mm. one thing about society. We need to realize suffering is part of life and it's even redemptive and good for us in many yeah. ways. Yeah. But when you think it's never going to go away, that's when I panic. Yeah. And that's what I didn't know. So I will tell you, so a mir- literally a miracle. I've had three miracles that I would, would, I mean, many more than that, I'm sure, but three really distinct miracles that have happened in my life that I'm like, n- there was no explanation for that. So here's what happened on mine. Yeah. So I um, met up with this guy um, who was going to help me exercise and get feeling better about myself. Okay. And he said, what, do you, what kind of exercise do you want to do? We can go bike riding, we can row, row boats, we can you know, go out to the harbor. And I said, let's run, I'm a runner. And so he said, okay, and he met me and he'd been through a lot of stuff in his life. And so we were out running randomly and following a path and um, he's telling me about his life and he's telling me about this man who wrote a book about called Soul Renovation and about how we have to understand how God loves us. And he's telling me about this guy, you should meet him. He's a wonderful guy. And we're running along the beach and suddenly these two people come walking by us on the beach and, and he says hi to them and talks briefly and then we keep running. And as we were running away, he goes, you know who that guy was? That's the guy who wrote the book. <laughs> and, I, and, he, and he said to me, we should meet him someday. I said, are you kidding? We should meet him right now. <laughs> and we turned around and sprinted down the beach and met the guy. And he told me his story and, I was, and he prayed over me. And, and I was like, how did it happen that that guy happened to be there? This was not a hoax. This was totally random. And, and that was God saying, I am here for you. Oh, wow. Because that was at the peak of my of my fear and of my terror. Hmm. We're running on the beach. This guy's telling me, you need to meet this guy. That was the guy. That's unbelievable. It is. I that mean, is truly unbelievable. Do you remember, so the book is called Soul Renovation? Soul Renovation. Do you remember the author's name I now? don't remember his We're name. We're going to link to it in the he's show a, he's a, we'll find he's it. A, I, don't, I do know he was one of the people who bought radio keratonomy here from the Soviet Union, the okay. eye surgery. And I should remember his name. It's been years. But he, and he was, a, he was an eye doctor who went through his own conversion and wrote this book. And he takes you through the Bible and just said, here's all the places where God tells you he loves you. And you got to quit le- listening to the lies that says he doesn't. And that's exactly what I needed to hear. And there he was. When you look back over those first 42, 43 years, whatever it was up to 11 years ago, where there, I, lo- I look back on my own childhood, yeah. there was like performance saying, uh, addiction oh, where yeah. I was just totally a performance addict. And the better I did, the more I was loved. It was a lie. Absolutely. What were there things looking back on it now that you see clearly? Absolutely. In front, in fact, it was Henry Cloud. Just recently, I saw we were speaking together. At yeah, yeah. And he said, "Pat, you you've got some childhood wounds you haven't dealt with." He and said to you like last month. Yeah, this was like no, this was three months ago. Oh, three months ago. Yeah. So I started oh, to yeah, recover, but then I told him, yeah. and then and then I read this book called "Be Healed." Hmm. Um, be healed. And right now, because I'm talking on a podcast, the guy's name is. Dr. Bob Schutz. Okay. Bob Schutz. Fantastic book. And then I went and saw a faith-based psychologist and all three of them said, you have wounds you've never dealt with. Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay, bring it on. And what I came to realize when I was really young, I was in a childhood situation of 
pretty much loneliness, mm-hmm. like desperate, like not my parents, they did the best they could. They're awesome people. God mm-hmm. rest my dad's soul. But I was not, I was kind of in a place. And when you're really young and you realize that's what goes on, you often turn to anything to distract you. And for me, it was achievement mm-hmm. and worry. Mm-hmm. And so from that age on, I not wanting to acknowledge that I was afraid and this sounds, you know, this is real. I mean, I'm not like pity me. This is just what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I realized I substituted the fear of not being loved with achievement and, and worry. Wow. And everybody said, you're a worrier. And then they said, you have OCD, all which was true. <laughs> but it all stemmed from the fact that that's how I kept myself alive yeah. in a world where I felt largely unloved. And again, I don't want any pity from anybody. No, I'm no, not, no. Because my parents were did their very best and they had their own stuff and their parents had their own stuff. Yeah. But until I came to, to realize, oh, that's... And so in the last three months of my life, I've begun to actually identify the source of this and be able to go there and go, okay, I can sit in that and I can actually deal with the fact that I felt like that when I was a kid and that I'm, it's not going to kill me. Because when mm-hmm. you're three years old or four years old or five year olds, you think it will kill you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's that, that desperate. I had the same thing where I just felt alone a lot, which was really weird. I was with a group of leaders the other day at a big company. Yeah. And one of the things we do to, te- to go through to help them build, build trust is to be more vulnerable. So we asked them just to tell us their stories. Like, so where'd you grow up? How many kids were in your family? And what was the hardest challenge of your childhood? And it was amazing. These are really, this is one of the largest companies in America. Yeah. And these were really neat people, nice people. They all grew up very poor and with very difficult challenges in their childhood. Man. And I think so many achievers in the world, that's what they're doing is they're unknowingly trying to overcome that. Do you know how common that is? So we're 300 oh. episodes in on this podcast, Pat. And this is like a case study thing. We're just yeah. talking with people about their stories. I don't know. I don't think I've ever had a guest who was born rich, you know, or maybe <laughs> one or two. They were all like... Uh, well, Ron- if they were, hopefully they just had no love. that might be their motivation (laughs) but you know it's like there's always a deficit there's always a wound that you're kind of leading out of and and when we can acknowledge it accept it and trust god through it then we can do things for the right reasons and if we become successful it's because we're being obedient and joyful not because we're running from failure one of my greatest fears when i was at the bottom and i remember there was a day in my counselor's office where he said remember how you feel right now because I was almost suicidal. Like I was like, it was so dark. And I thought my life's over. I've built this great life and now right. it's been destroyed. And nothing had happened on the outside. It was all going great. All it was right. just me imploding, right? So That's almost worse because then you don't know what to attribute it to. You think you're crazy. Exactly. And, and for me, he said, remember how you feel. He says, because you're going to get out of this, but a lot of people won't. And then I, I, a turnaround for me was the moment, remember I was pulling off the highway and I had a rare moment of clarity that summer and it was, oh, this is all in your head. There's a, you have a wife who loves you, two boys who love you. You have a church that loves you. You've got friends, you've got family. And, um, and that was just the beginning. That was the first little right. ray of light. What was a turning point for you or what was the, a little glimmer of hope? I think that ago? miracle was huge. Oh yeah, meeting I mean, that was the that moment when yeah. I was so desperate and there I am standing on the beach. <laughs> This old man I had never met, God bless him, him and his wife, and I told him my story, and he tells me exactly what I'm feeling. I mean, he knows, and wow. he starts praying over me, and it was just like, this is, 
God does So that was care. the beginning of the turnaround. And that's what I would say to people listening to this. It's like, whether you're a person of faith or not, God does care. He is real. Suffering is not without purpose. And had I not suffered, I would have never got to the other side. So it's so often in life that we can go, like I heard that guy, John O'Leary, who yeah. got burned over his entire body at age nine. He spent five months laying spread eagle in a hospital, couldn't see because his eyes were swollen shut, couldn't eat, could barely breathe, couldn't talk. He laid there in pain for five months, but he could pray and he could listen. And he now says, remember, there's a purpose for all this and, wow. and God loves you. And now he is spending all of his time helping other people who are feeling empty. And it's one of those things where you just go, oh, until I understand that, nothing is gonna satisfy. So suffering has a reason. And when you're in the midst of it, you're, not, you're never, ever, ever alone. You know, Mother Teresa used to walk by hospitals and say, it's so sad. She'd look at the hospital and they'd say, why? And she said, because there's a lot of people in there suffering and they don't know that there's a, a reason for it and that they're loved. Mm. And our society today, I think maybe at the heart of the brokenness in society is that we think any form of suffering is something we've done wrong and that, we, and that we, it shouldn't be happening and we despair. Where there are other people I meet, I have a friend right now who's been in bed for six years with a back problem. Oh my. And he, and, and he doesn't know where it's going on. He's been to doctors, he's been through surgery. And yet he says, hey, I'm offering up my, my suffering for you. And he has children and he's joyful. He struggles with it, hmm. but he hasn't lost his faith or his hope. And then I, I think, gosh, I have three bad days in a row. And I'm starting to go, why me? Yeah, no kidding, Pat. But so, so it's one of those things that uh, I really want to encourage people that you're not alone. How has your leadership been different in the last 11 years? Well, and I'm not perfect, Yeah. but it's certainly been, and it's probably why I wrote this book, it's certainly been far more focused on others and not on myself. Mm-hmm. And I say that knowing that I've had days and weeks when I've failed, yeah. but it's, I just know that this is not about me. And, um, and even when I have to be, my big thing, it's tough for me to be tough on people. And so my guilt makes me even tougher. (laughs) And what I realize now is if my intentions are good and I care about that other person, I can love them enough to be tough on them and know that it's okay. On your bad days, how does the self-talk go? What do you say to yourself? Well, I don't forgive myself for making mistakes. Okay. And I, I get very, um, I, I lose sight of the fact that I'm supposed to serve other people and it's not supposed to be easy. And I get grumpy that other people are making it hard for me to serve them, <laughs> you know? And it's like, like, hey, I'm trying to help you, darn it. You're supposed to be making this easy for me. <laughs> so when clients don't do their homework when they- Or, uh, or like, people well, that work for me okay. or somebody that I'm trying to help in their life or maybe even somebody in my family. Clients I'm a little different with because for whatever reason, you know, I think that it's the- the, the, the curse, I, I say this lightly, the curse of unconditional love. You know, it's like, well, I can get mad at my kids for this because they're going to love me. But if I do that to a client, they might not keep working with me. <laughs> right, so I, right. I, I better be patient with them. <laughs> Whereas I realize now I should be more patient with the people closest to me in my life. Hmm. That's good. Well, you, you talked about not wanting to hold people accountable. Yeah, that's, that's one of the temptations. You talk about that in the five temptations of a CEO. Where does that come from? You link it to people pleasing and so on, but like that that's another thing. Well, I think ultimately what it comes down to is not having true esteem, knowing that God loves you. Because the reason why I don't hold people accountable is because I'm afraid they're going to be upset with me and that I'm going to be convinced that I'm a terrible person. So you know what I do is I avoid it and then eventually I get mad. <laughs> so instead of saying, hey, 
Fred, you know, you didn't do what you were supposed to. It kind yeah. of frustrates me. I need more from you. There could be consequences for this, but I'm going to let you know I'm a little frustrated with this. What I do is I go, hey, Fred, you're doing okay. <laughs> hey, Fred, what about that? Oh, that's okay. And then it comes out just because I'm so pissed off, I can't keep it in anymore. That's really bad economics or math. Yes. So, so I'm trying to be nice when I need, they need tough love. By the time their tough love comes out, I've held it in so long, it comes out way too tough. Mm-hmm. And you say in the book, I mean, uh, and that's, that's why I so appreciate it. I think these are human problems, not like oh. stuff. Like this is going to be around 20 years from now, 100 years from now. It's just the temptations and the difficulty of leadership. But that's why you say, okay, everything's going great. And next thing you know, the CEO is firing the person, right? Right. So I wouldn't deal with conflict, but now all of a sudden, well, Fred, you're fired. And it's not like they're going to come back and say, hey, Fred, or no, hey, hey, CEO, thanks for not telling me that. You made me feel, I got fired now and I don't have a yeah, job. I felt but- really good until that moment you let me go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I answered this question yesterday. I was talking to an audience and they said, what, what happens there? And it's like, I said, they said, how can you change that? And it was the day I realized that me not holding Fred accountable was an act of total selfishness. I used to oh, justify it and say, but I care about Fred. I don't want him to feel bad. It's like, no, no, no. I don't want him to blame me for feeling bad. And I don't want to have to be around him when he feels that way. Once I realized that not holding Fred accountable was not an act of love or charity or, or mercy, it was actually an act of selfishness for myself. And he was going to ultimately suffer. <laughs> I was saying, I don't want to suffer a little and I'll trade that off for you ultimately suffering a lot. And when you realize that as a leader, most people will go, that's really bad. So we suffer from this in corporate and we have a lot of company like Marketplace listeners, but is oh, the churches. not-for-profit or churches oh, worse? Oh, the worst. Yeah, let's go there. You know, and as a follower of Jesus, you know, somehow I mistranslated the Bible to always be nice to your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and it's love your neighbor as yourself and to, to withhold information and perspective that they need to hear to make themselves better as a worker, as an employee, as a friend, as a spouse, as a parent, to withhold that from them is not an act of love at all, Hmm. at all. Now, that doesn't mean you go up to somebody out of the gate and you just rip them one, (laughs) but you lovingly tell them what they need to hear, even if they punish you for it. See, that's the thing. Am I willing to suffer to help them. What does that look like? What do you mean by somebody punishes you for telling them the truth? They, they're defensive in the moment and mm-hmm. they accuse you of, well, if you didn't tell me, so it's not my fault. Right. And you're like, and you have to go, or, well, you're not very nice or you're not very supportive of me. Or they just look at you and they go tell other people, well, he, he, he corrected me, but who is he to correct me? And it's hmm. like, oh, I'm your manager. And even though I'm not a hypocrite, I've had people do that for me before and I needed it and you need it, and even if you're not in a place to thank me for it, I'm going to do it. Because that's what I want people to do is to go, you know something, Fred? You need to get better at that. Pat, thank you for being such a great manager and telling me that. I'm going to run right out and do that. And when they don't do that, I'm like, well, what the heck? And I have to be like, that's okay. It's okay not to be popular in the moment, to be misunderstood, to do. Totally. And again, that feeds into temptation number one, wanting to appear successful, wanting to avoid pain. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. That avoidance of pain causes so many problems. We end up trading off short-term pain that's in our best interest for longer-term pain that's not. 
Okay, question for you. Do CEOs uh, as well, because this is, I've been having numerous conversations lately. Pastors love to fudge the numbers. They love to pretend the church is bigger than it is, that the offering is better than it <laughs> we is. We have 45 ministries. How many people are going to those ministries? Three, but there's 45 <laughs> of them. How about four ministries with 200 people? No. <laughs> yeah. Do uh, Shading the truth, pretending things are better than they are. Uh, blaming the economy rather than your own performance. To what extent is that an issue in, in leaders that you consult with? In the church or in other places? Both. Let's Both. just go there. Yeah, you know, people, most leaders do not sit around a room smoking stogies going and say, hey, let's cook these books. Right. People think that <laughs> greed is what motivates CEOs for doing that. It's not greed, it's pride. Mm. And it's, it's like I, I had a client once who, who cooked the books. And he spent some time, and we, nobody knew it. Even his CFO didn't know it. He, it was purely him. And that's one of the other things people don't realize. So many things that, that are happening that are corrupt, leaders do it themselves. Right. And everybody it's thinks everybody team. around them knew. They didn't know. And so I, there was a CEO who did this. And you know what? It wasn't because he wanted to be richer or have a bigger house. He came from a tough background and he wanted to be successful. And he wanted the people that worked there to be successful. And he wanted them to have more money. He was cooking the books so he could be their hero. Oh, wow. And, 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 and everybody wants to say, it's greed. These people are greedy. And sometimes there are, mm -hmm. but most of them want to be held in high esteem. And the idea of failing, it's like most people who cheat in a game do it because they don't like the idea of feeling less than somebody else. Right. You know, and, and what, they're really, what they're really struggling with is pride. Pride is the root of all sin. You know, greed, lust, envy, anger, um, sloth, um, I don't, there's one more, but mm -hmm. all of those are ultimately functions. When people cheat on their wife, it's yeah. usually not pure lust. Right. It's they don't feel good about themselves. They need to feel a sense of, of importance or a sense of, it's, it's usually pride. Wow. Yeah. And, and again, I, I don't sense that pastors are intentionally trying to lie or leaders are trying to lie. Oh, They're they just like, be a good pastor. It's, a, it's a little bit better. And I'm just afraid to admit it's what it really is. Oh yeah. And they, and they want the people in the church to feel good about it and go, come on, isn't this great? <laughs> oh no, no doubt about it. I think sometimes in churches, it's really hard. We have to know what we're really measuring. And the problem is in a church, you can't measure it. Cause what's the purpose of a church to bring people to Jesus? Yeah. Numbers don't tell that story. Right. There are churches that are full, and, and I'm not saying this is always true, but they have a great band and great music. I mean, great and great and great donuts, and it's fun <laughs> and it's hip, and the, and the message is really well done, but it might not be, the depth might not be there. People might, might not really be, be ingesting this stuff. Yeah. And there's some little tiny churches where people are totally transforming their lives, but nobody's going to write a story about that. Hmm. There's 250 people in this little parish or this little church who are on fire for their faith. And it's in a little town and they are loving on the people in that town and turning their lives around. But that church with 50,000 people a weekend at the thing, and I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, hmm. but we can measure the wrong things. Just like a company that makes more money, but does so at the expense of their customer satisfaction and their employees. Yeah. There are companies who get away with that because of market dynamics. That's not necessarily success. You gotta know what you're measuring. And right. it's really hard to measure the depth of people's faith in the church. So we look at things like how many people are coming and what's the collection and who wrote an article in a church magazine about it. Right. right. And even, even employee engagement, like getting your volunteers and employees to actually rally around the mission, feel good about it, um, give their lives to something that's bigger than themselves. Do you think that's changing in corporate too? I've had a number of conversations over the last few years 
where you look at millennials coming into the workplace, Gen Z coming into the workplace, they don't just want a job. They don't just want to pad the bottom line. You know why? Because they're lazy. They're all lazy. No, I'm just teasing. You know, <laughs> that's what people want to say. And they're they not. Now, no. now they, they have a different paradigm on these. They want a purpose. Yes. And they want a reason. And they want some freedom on how to do that. And I, I like to say, give them a goal. First of all, don't hire anybody. They have to actually want the mission. Mm-hmm. And then when, if they do, show them what, to do, what, what, you, what goal you want from them and turn them loose to do it and let them know if they're doing it well or not. And so many, we've got um, Gen Xers. No, I'm a Gen Xer, I think. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Think. We have Gen Y here and millennials or whatever, you know, and they're, now they're Zs. Hey, listen, I don't care how old they are, what generation they're in. If they're, if they're into the mission and they want to do a good job, they're humble, hungry, and smart, as I say, mm. turn them loose. And we, we're, everybody wants to talk about what's your gender, what's your ethnicity, what generation you're in. That's just so lazy. <laughs> human beings are human beings. I'd rather know their Myers-Briggs type and their family background in terms of their wounds and how I can inspire them to want to do good work. Are there lazy Gen Xers, Gen Yers, Gen Zers, baby boomers, greatest generations? Absolutely. And every one of those groups has great people. We have to manage them a little differently based on how they grew up. I mean, how can I complain about Gen Zers? I raised them. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> What's wrong with these kids? I don't know, Pat. You're an expert in them. You raised them, so you tell me. <laughs> and by the way, we had one of my sons come work here this summer. Yeah. And it was so wonderful to see him. He's 21, and he is becoming a man. Is he different? Yes. But when we gave him stuff to do, he did it well. There were times when he did it differently, and I'd go, why are you doing it like that? He's like, Dad, just trust me. And the outcomes were great. I have to adjust how I manage them. If I think they have to adjust how they work to suit their manager, that's not the right way to lead. What are you finding that generation needs? Freedom? Well, I find that their hunger for truth is actually great. Ah. I love to hear what they're attracted to. They are the post-marketing generation. They don't (laughs) believe any of the BS they get now marketing. And I like that. Yeah. And so what they need is authentic, un- non-glossy connection to what you're really trying to do. And I think that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. And I think the problem is for those of us that are, in other words, they're not, they're skeptical, but I don't think they're cynical. They just want real. Hmm. And I think those that are used to managing a corporate world where you say, wah, 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 like the parents <laughs> on Charlie Brown, the customer is always right and quality is job when they're like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a slogan on a friggin' t-shirt. <laughs> They're like, tell me the truth. And the unvarnished truth usually inspires them. Some it doesn't, some it does. But I find that this generation, I think we're seeing a return to wanting truths. Hmm. And that's where the church is so important. And oh, and I take my kids to church and it's, if it's mediocre or the, the, the homily or the sermon isn't good, or they're just like, dad. And then somebody without dressing it up without fakiness, without dressing slick, just tells them the truth. They're like, that dude, or that was amazing. Yeah. And I yeah. love that. I love that. I, I, I actually think part of the problem is we're still trying to, baby boomers and Gen Xers are still trying to serve Gen Zers and Gen Yers the way they thought they needed it. Like right. youth groups drive yeah, me nuts. Yeah. When not, I'm a youth group pastor and I'm cool. And the kids are like, <laughs> you're a ninny. <laughs> 
And I say, and you know what I do when I talk to what? youth? I talk to them like adults about sex and drugs and problems in life. And they're like, oh, dude, this guy is actually listening to us. He, he's talking. And the people that are organized are like, oh, you can't talk to them that way. And it's like, <laughs> hey, everything they're seeing on the internet is that way. They're going to R-rated movies. They're watching them in their house. Why don't we just tell them the unabridged truth about what's good and they'll respond to it. And then you see this guy like, look at me. I'm wearing, you know, I'm wearing Skinny clothes. jeans. I look yeah. just like them. And the kids are like going, oh, please, you're insulting me. <laughs> so I really don't want to hear any more about experts on Generation Z. I just want to hear authentic people saying authentic things to people. Anyway, sorry, that was my little... Oh, this is great. How do you, how do you, you talked about, I would rather know the wounds of my team. How do you foster that kind of conversation? Well, you know, it's interesting. I never thought about it this way, but since I started my company, the biggest question I ask people is, what's your weakness? And I say, mm. I don't want to know what your weakness is. Like, well, I'm so con conscientious that I, you know, because that's what I will we overwork, told. yes. Exactly. I'll work too hard for you, I Pat. I care too much. Yeah. And, I, and I tell them that. I say, I really want to know what it is. Yeah. And I love it when people will say, yeah, you know something? Sometimes I'm a little flaky because here's how I was before and I don't want to be that way anymore, but I do that. And I'm like, I can work with anything. Hmm. Amy, who was the co-founder, well, gosh, she told us about, I don't have, I really don't have confidence and I really doubt myself and I can be a little weak at times. I remember when she told me that, hmm. she, I knew where it came from and she told me about that and I saw it and I'm like, I can work with that. Yeah. You know, uh, what I tell people about me is I'm really impatient and I get emotional and I don't like it, but I do. And I don't mean like I'm impatient so I get things done early. I mean, I can be ridiculously impatient and, you're, and I'm going to act that way and you're going to say, hey, stop it. And I'm going to listen to you and that's okay. <laughs> In other words, what's really your weakness? And so we talk about interviewing, ask people, and, and, and every culture has certain weaknesses that just won't work there. Mm. Like at our culture here, it's like forgiveness has got to be built into our culture. Yeah. And so when I, I used to interview people and say, so how do you deal with it when somebody makes you mad? And there was this one guy I was interviewing once and he was like, oh, I'm fine. And I just oh. didn't trust it. And I said, well, what would, if your friends do something that makes you angry, what do, how do you, oh, I'm fine. And I just didn't feel it. And I said, if I asked your wife, would she say you're a grudge holder? And he said, oh yeah, she'd say I hold huge grudges. And I knew it. Uh. And I knew it that he wouldn't fit. Yep. It was in his best interest and mine. So anyway- that's a long answer to a short question, but um, I really like to understand people's wounds because Amy was weak for a reason and I'm impatient and, and, and too emotional for a reason. Once you understand where it comes from, you can work with them. And On my team, we have one of our members who has shared with the whole team and first with me that she really struggles with anxiety oh. and she was starting to go under and had to go see a professional about it. And I, I, I could sense the fear in her eyes when she was telling me that. And it actually just made me accept her more. Exactly. Embrace her more. I'm like, and, and I'll ask her, how are you doing? Are you, are you it, it, it's a game changer. And you know what happens if you don't know that? And she what? doesn't, she's not vulnerable. If Amy doesn't tell me, she sometimes loses, lacks confidence. Yeah. And she doesn't know that I sometimes get impatient, all this. We commit what's called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error says that if that woman who works for you looks like she's worried all the time, you'll go, What's wrong with this person? She's anal. She doesn't trust people. And you'll, you'll make a, 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 an erroneous attribution about her character. Yes. But the fundamental attribution error also means that we, when we have a problem, we attribute it to our environment. We know what causes it in ourselves. <laughs> right. So a guy cuts me off in traffic and I say, he's a jerk. I literally will look at him and judge him. 
Uh-huh. That guy is a selfish jerk who doesn't care about others. I cut him off in traffic and I go, I'm having a bad day. Right, right. You I have to understand. To the airport. Sorry. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> Think of it. And that's human nature. I mean, yeah. like St. Francis, no, um, yeah, he said, seek to understand more than to be understood. Right. But so to understand somebody, you have to under, you have to know about them. So now when this woman gets a little freaky at work, you go, oh, she's having anxiety. I can love her through this and understand she's not anal. She's not untrusting. She's anxious. And there's a reason for that. And I can go, hey, are you feeling anxious? And she go, yeah. yeah. And when Amy kind of waffles on something, I go, is this one of those times where you're feeling un- lack of confidence? She, yeah. Now, Amy and I've worked together for 22 years. Just today, we had a, we are in the best place in our whole relationship in 22 years. She's gotten grown and she can call me when I'm impatient. And when she's, and so, but if we didn't understand where that came from, we'd have walked away years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so no, if you don't it, know where it's it made her from, feel so comfortable and oh. it's like, you, you can just say whenever, like I'm struggling and we're behind you a hundred percent. And of course, she's a rock star. Like she's just great at what she does and it made her better at what she does because she doesn't have to hide. Exactly. And she can be loved mm. and she can be, and, and she can say to people, hey, you guys, I'm having one of those days. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the forgiveness guy, I, I knew there was something, that was one of those traits that- Oh yeah, that's a, that's a I don't want to say it's a character thing, but I know what you mean. If, if it, it's hard to teach someone how to forgive as part of the job description. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And there are yeah. places where he could work that wouldn't demand that of him. Yep. And that would be better for him. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. To work with me, that would just be, a, you know, the third month it would be like, oh no. So the third temptation, believe it or not, 47 minutes in, we're on number three, but we're uh, going to go through the last two quick, uh, is to be correct rather than clear. Yeah. Correct is, rather than clear. And I'm sure there are certain Myers-Briggs type of personalities that are more like this. And that is, but it, what it, it's a human thing. Leaders that want to make sure when they, when they say this is what we're going to do, that they're right. That's pride of making the right decision. Mm-hmm. And the best leaders are the ones that go, I'm going to make a decision. After listening to everybody, yeah. I, will draw, I will break the tie because that's my job. We might be right. We might be wrong. We'll learn but it's better to have clarity in the moment and, and act on that clarity. And then if, when we discover we're wrong, if that happens, we'll correct it then. But that all goes back to number one, right? Or you're just afraid like, oh, well, what if I'm wrong? And so you say in the book, you're trying to get more data, more data, more data. Well, you'll never have enough data. But the first one is all about perception and status. Okay. The next one is about being well-liked. Mm. The next one is about being correct. Uh, so some, people, some people go, I don't care if I'm wrong as long as I... People, like, people think highly of me. Now, now, they can be tied together, but this is a much more intellectual one. Okay. This is much more intellectual. Like, like I'm, a, I'm an engineer and I, we need to find the right answer. And it's like, you know something? The right answer is not available, but an answer is better than no answer. Hmm. And there's some CEOs will allow their companies to spin because they're waiting for the perfect data to come in. And it's like what people want is just clarity. Hmm. You know, okay. That's a, that's, okay. Number four. Uh, conflict, avoiding conflict. Oh, I love talking about this one. This is huge. You have a great podcast on it too, where you talked about it on your podcast about how to do conflict. But let's go there because I I would, well, no, I'm just gonna let you talk. Go ahead. Well, there's just not enough conflict in most organizations, but it's it's good conflict, which is what we call ideological conflict around ideas. Is that the right plan? Is that the right way to approach this? Is that the right way to go about this? People should be debating that if they trust each other. They have, to, they have to be vulnerable and trust each other. If you trust somebody, conflict is just the pursuit of truth. If you don't trust them, it's politics because you're trying to win. So we have to say uh-huh. that. But most organizations, the vast majority of, of organizations have far too little conflict because they've been taught in society that disagreement 
is uncomfortable and you should avoid un discomfort. I mean, the truth of the matter is, Carrie, you, you and I have been sitting here talking. If, if I said, gee, my favorite movie is this movie, you know, is Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you didn't like it, you would be uncomfortable to go, you know, I didn't really like that movie. I mean, that, think yeah, about yeah, that. yeah, that's right. If you don't have discomfort in life, you're not going to actually learn. And we, we go to meetings and we work together and churches are the worst at this <laughs> and go, if we're having any conflict, then there's something wrong. Right. And people do that in marriages. And it's like, no, 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 no. Learn, Cody and I, a, a colleague of mine, he and I had a great talk and it was really good for me to hear. He was talking about how he and his wife disagreed and, and how you can get upset and have good conflict. And that's how the better decision comes. Don't you tell that story? I don't know whether that was in a talk or whether that was in a book about you and your wife used to go with this couple when you were first and you, you would disagree yes. loudly and they never would. And can you tell that story? Yeah, it story? was my sister-in-law, my oh, wife's wow. little sister married my roommate from San Francisco when we lived in the city. And so I thought, this is awesome. My buddy, he, was, he and I were good friends, was gonna be my brother-in-law. Well, we, our, Laura and I would always argue. I'm Italian and Irish and she's a convert and she's, a, <laughs> she's an arguer too. And we would go to dinner and we would argue about stuff. Like, why, why do you say that? Why do you do that? And then we'd make up and, and they agreed on everything. Wow. It seemed. Then a year and a half after they got married, the year after we did, he left her. They got divorced. And when I went and talked to him, he said, yeah, Pat, I always thought you and Laura had a bad marriage because you argued. And I realized now we had a bad marriage because we couldn't argue. Not that we always do, yeah. but that you can't go there. Because if you can't go there, you don't grow. And companies that avoid conflict, don't, the, the executive teams don't, don't grow. Wow. So how do you manage that within boundaries at the table group? Well, I'm the only one that oversteps the boundaries. <laughs> and that's the truth. Let me tell you. Because the majority of people in life don't go beyond that. Right. And what I tell people is this. If you never go over the boundary you don't know where that boundary is. Hmm. And by the way, and when you do go over the boundary, that's when you get the beauty of apologizing and actually coming together and forgiving. What would be an example of going over the boundary? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, well, let's just replay my last two weeks here. I mean, because <laughs> and to say to somebody, like you're sitting in a meeting and somebody says, well, I don't think we should do that. And you say, why? And they go, well, I don't know. And, you, and I might go, you know something? Just tell us why. You know, I might be annoyed. Yeah. And, and I get what, what they call here the face. <laughs> and, and let's just say, I might say, do you not have the courage to tell us? Or, or do you really not know? And why are you still arguing? And people go, whoa, what's going on with you? And that's where I have to go, oh, I'm sorry. It's yeah. just, I think I'm a little frustrated. I feel like you might be holding back. My bad though. And then the right answer comes out. And I'm not saying you want to do that every time you talk to somebody. Yeah, yeah. But let me tell you, if that happens once per meeting, that's a way more interesting meeting. The team, the person can apologize. Everybody gets safer. Like, hey, we could actually survive that. Hmm. Suddenly come, people come to meetings and they're like, I'm not worried about stepping over the line. Right. And you're soliciting, you're craving real feedback. Exactly. Even if you don't agree with exactly. it. Exactly. And so you're not talking about like having a volcanic meltdown. Everybody goes home angry and you have to apologize for that. You're talking about just pushing people beyond the lines of social acceptability. Yes. Yes, and an occasional volcanic meltdown is better than muted responses for a year. Oh, wow. I mean, because wow. you can recover, yeah. especially if the person's vulnerable enough to go, whoa, gosh, I, you guys, I was having a terrible day. Blew it yesterday. Yeah, now if occasional, if, if it's happened every week or every month, that's a problem. <laughs> but but the, here's the thing, I, the, I would rather see people lose it every once in a while and recover 
then never go up, to, go up to that line. Because what happens is, here's the thing, people will go, well, how can that be? The cost of never going up to that line is bad decisions that affect people's lives. Mm. If you're in a church or a business, you're constantly making decisions without good information and without people's passion because you're saying, let's never go there. And, and that's death by paper cut. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I've never broken my leg, but I've never gone outside. <laughs> You know? Yeah, you're right. So, Pat, I got to ask you this because we're going to get questions about it. I know you're a big Myers-Briggs person, ENFP. Yeah. Is that right? Your yes, type? ENFP. So am I. Do you know Enneagram at all? Do you know what your type is? You know, I know a little bit about it. I think I'm a three. You'll tell me what I am. You'll probably okay. know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring the Enneagram. I've got some questions about it. I know it's getting very popular and there's still some lingering questions I have about its underneath validity. And uh, I'm, I'm learning about it. You know, But you I'm, think you're a three performer? Uh, I think I'm partly that. And then the, what's the challenger? I'm oh, I'm definitely. I, okay, I'm an. What, what would you say, Cody? I think eight. Seven, when you read the description, somewhere in the eight with like a, the seven. Somewhere in the eight with a seven wing, says Cody. Oh yeah, okay. what's the wing? What's the seven? That's your, your secondary type. Your secondary Is, type. And what's seven? I'll have to introduce you to Ian Cron. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's he does a lot. I know of there's some really good things in Enneagram this. stuff, and uh, I'm an eight with a seven wing, so I'm a challenger. On the good days, we're saving the world. We're Martin Luther King. On the bad days, we're Joseph Stalin and everyone's dead. So Yeah, you know what's funny? That's how I am at work. Mm -hmm. But when I'm not, when I don't feel the pressure to be the one pushing, yeah. I think I, I have a part of me that I might enjoy the three a little bit more. The performer. So performer, performer, it's interesting. So seven wing is an Enneagram seven is basically the fun type, the adventurer. Oh, oh yeah, that's oh, me. Yeah, yeah. That's me. You strike me as as that. You would yes. probably be a seven or with an eight wing I or an eight me. with a seven wing. But wing seven with I a little say. bit of stress uh. and like the, I'm a leader that likes to lead by motivation and and ideas. When I have to be the one pushing people and calling people on deadlines and stuff like that, I that's not my thing. Yeah, that's well, not I'll have thing. to make that introduction. Oh That'd yeah, that's good. great. That'd be fun. Uh, okay, uh, one last question that we're yes. going to wrap up because we've gone. We've just had so much fun today. Yeah, this is great. Uh, Pat, so the fifth type is vulnerability, right? The fifth temptation is vulnerability, the unwillingness to be vulnerable with your team. And you have been unbelievably vulnerable in this interview, which I'm extremely grateful for. But that is hard for a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we're taught not to be. Yep. We're taught not to be. Don't let them see a sweat. Yeah. Whereas I think it's so vulnerable, it's so much more liberating to just raise up your arm and point at that armpit and go, check this out. I'm sweating <laughs> like a pig here. And I, I've learned that over time. It's just hiding. And, and, and so many leaders are trying to protect that. And it's just, it's a misery because yeah. every day you come in and you're not real. And it's much better to say to people, I have faults. I am not perfect. I will call that out. When I make a mistake, I'll be the first one to say so. And as a result of that, people will trust you. Yeah. And that's the problem is leaders who don't like to be vulnerable can only be trusted as far as they're, they're open to their own mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so vulnerability is at the heart of this. And it's, it's countercultural. There's other people talking about it right now. Brent, Brene Brown talks about yeah. vulnerability a lot. And I just think I've thought for years that this is the thing that makes a leader strong. It's like, and you know, in, biblically, I am St. Paul said, right? I'm, I'm weak. I'm strong when I am weak because I'm weak as it's not me, it's God. And I think as a leader, when you think it's about you and you think you have to be on and you have to prove yourself all the time and you have to be something you're not, it, people see right through that and they stop trusting you. And when you're the kind of leader that comes in and says, I know who I am, I'm not excusing it all. I'm going to try to get better, 
but I know I'm, I'm, I'm imperfect and I make mistakes. Other people say, well, then I can be open to that myself. Has it gotten easier for you to be vulnerable in the last 11 years? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No doubt. How so? Um, it's, and there's moments when it's not, but overall, absolutely. Because when you realize it's not about you anymore and the achievements don't define you, then you're like, what do I have to lose? But back then, before then, it's like, I have to preserve that. That's, that's my, that defines me. That's my bank account. And if somebody destroys that, I am through, you know? Wow. You know, I, I like, I have these funny fantasies of like, everything falling apart and me living someplace where nobody knows who I am. And I work in a coffee shop and I, I just have to get really good at making bagels, you know? <laughs> and like, that's when I would know how good I was if I could do that joyfully and, and, uh, and not have any less sense of myself. Isn't you know right what I mean? How, how does, yeah, no, I think we all have those alternate careers. How does that play out in your mind? What, is that like on a stressful day you think about that? Or no, actually like- on a day when I'm, uh, when I'm not praying enough, mm-hmm. I think, you know, you really need to go someplace and, and break it down to nothing. You know, if I get too caught up in things, I think after I give a talk to a big audience, yeah. I, I, I'm really drawn to the people that work in the kitchen and the people that work in the back. And I'll go in the back of the house and I want to just talk to them. Because it's like, I put it this way, anybody that talks to any rock star, and I'm mm. not a rock star, and I'm, I don't, you know, but if I speak to a big yeah, audience. You speak to tens of thousands of people at a time. Well, I have before, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And um, it's not real. <laughs> I mean, it's so fake. And, and I mean, well, well, what's not real about what that? What I mean, the, 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 the applause and the attention. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. What, if you give them good value, that's totally real. But the whole feeling of like, oh, I'm special is so not real. Because yeah. all you have to do is go home and your kids and your wife talk to you and you're like, oh, I have to do this. So right after I leave stage, I, it's very uncomfortable. I'm like, don't, don't let yourself believe any of this. Yeah. So I really want to go have an authentic conversation with the AV guy or the people serving the food or, or go back to my room and talk to the, the person cleaning the room because you realize no one person is more important than another and you can get really caught up in that. Oh, Wow. That's you know, good there's word. There's an NFL player, God bless him, but he was wearing a $2 million watch at practice the other day. My goodness. And putting it on Instagram and stuff. And I just think, oh my gosh, you know, and I, I say that, that's a kind of weird example, but it's like, I, when I hear that, I feel so bad for them. Yeah. Because they, they think this is what makes them special. So your new book is called The Motive. It comes out next the year? Motive. It comes out in March. March. I cannot, well... You're going to get one in a few minutes. Advanced I copy. I can't wait. I can't wait, Pat. <laughs> what a gift. Uh, last question. Is there one question that you always wish someone would ask you and nobody ever asks you? Ooh, I, gosh, I cannot imagine that you didn't ask me a question that I... Um, no, I don't think so. I that's wish I, okay. I should have a great one. Like, yes, you no. should ask me. Well, that's for next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Pat, uh, people want to find you online. Where are you most active and what's the best website? You know, tablegroup.com is our company's website. Yeah. Table group, like kitchen table, tablegroup.com. There's all kinds of resources there and stuff. Tons of free stuff. Yeah. Um, we're doing that podcast now, which you can find that anywhere podcasts are. Mm-hmm. It's called At the Table with Patrick Lincioni, yeah. this very table. Um, we're, we're starting to do more on Instagram and, uh, and LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff. So, but mostly just go to our website, send us a note. This has been so much fun. Time has flown. Pat, I can't thank you enough. I will have to tell you, though, I feel kind of bad. Why? <laughs> well, I think when I spend this much time talking about myself, it feels like, okay, that's... No, uh... <laughs> no, 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 no. Seriously. 
part of the heartbeat of this podcast is the idea, and your all of our interactions have been super personable. But it's like we want the story behind the story, and if we were just gonna have dinner tonight, if we were just gonna sit around at a coffee shop and We'd talk, talk like this, yeah, we would talk like this. Yeah, you're right, and. And I think it's, and you must have this too, right? Like there, there, there's hardly any CEO you haven't met in your life that you would want to meet. You've met with politicians and top leaders from around the world. And at the end of the day, we're all just the same. Totally. And that's why I think sometimes it's something like this. I'm like, you know, people listen to me talk a lot. I'm not right about everything I said. And uh, I'd like to listen to all your listeners and see what they think. Because <laughs> I really don't think that I'm, I'm worthy of that. But I appreciate the fact that it's interesting and maybe it can help people. And so it's been a huge gift to me. All Thanks, right. Pat, as you are. Thank appreciate you it. Here, well, that was rich and powerful. And I mean, isn't it just good to know that you're not alone? That the struggle is real and everybody faces it. And uh, Pat, thanks so much for being so transparent on that. If you want to know more about Patrick Lencioni or get the transcripts for this episode or any of the links that we mentioned, you can head on over to the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 299. We got everything there, including transcripts for free. We also have a few of our back episodes on YouTube and you can just uh, search Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast or my name on YouTube. You will run into them. We are building that archive up as we speak. And in the meantime, don't forget that I'm doing Ask Kerry at the end of this podcast talking about what leadership principles are different between, you know, a junior leader and a senior leader. So we're going to be handling that. And also, you'll want to check out Remodel Health before the new year hits. Go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to save pretty big on your healthcare costs and improve benefits at the same time. And lots of churches are jumping on board with the Red Letter Challenge, a 40-day turnkey campaign for your church, regardless of size. And it works for small churches, mega churches, and everybody in between. And you get a big discount as a podcast listener. So head to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry to learn more. Well, next episode, I am so excited to bring you, well, really a deep conversation with N.T. Wright. He is one of the greatest theologians alive today. So I know we got a growing number of business listeners. Some of you are involved at your church. Some of you, uh, you're like, I'm not sure about Christianity. I just listened to this podcast. I think you're going to love N.T. Wright. He makes, you know, in a world where everything is so polarized, he makes so much sense of our faith to me, my faith to me. And he has written like a ridiculous number of books and uh, well, one of the greatest living theologians alive today. And here's an excerpt from my conversation with Tom Wright. Just lighten up, that's not what, that's not what it's about. That, that has never bothered me. The, the, the thing that worries me is that the people who do get hung up about that or who bend over backwards to try to explain rationalistically why the Bible is in fact inerrant in every God and tittle, um, they are routinely missing the big biblical story itself. That's the joke of it. That, so that the people who um, are most worried about, um, say, uh, a Darwinian account of origins versus a Genesis account of origins are often part of kind of right-wing movements in America and elsewhere who actually are deeply Darwinian themselves in the sense of a might is right philosophy. That's coming up next week, guys. It is absolutely free for all of you who subscribe. Also coming up, we've got Albert Tate. Uh, man, Albert Tate's a lot of fun. Steve Green, who is the president of Hobby Lobby. 
And uh, well, who else do we have coming up? We got a lot of people coming up. We've got uh, my own longtime assistant, <laughs> Sarah Piercy, is back on the podcast. She was on a while ago along with Dylan Smith, two of my teams. We got something fun coming down the pipe for you in November. Carlos Whitaker, Rebecca Lyons, Louis Giglio, Francis Chan, Larry Osborne, Liz Forkin Bohannon. She's talking about getting beginner's pluck. Chris Lemma, John Ortberg, John Acuff is back on the podcast. And uh, oh yeah, who else? Oh yeah, we got Jasmine Starr, John Mark Comer, Jefferson Bethke. Oh, so many more. Guys, it's going to be a great lineup coming up. And if you subscribe, you get it all for free. So on to Jamal's question. Jamal, is it Jamal or Jamal? I don't know. Is that Canadian? I don't know. Jamal, if I got it wrong, you just let me know. Okay. So Jamal wants to know, do you think that lead pastor principles directly translate to associate pastors? So in other words, do senior leader principles translate to, let's say you're not in the top suite or like kids, pastors, student pastors, exec pastors, next gen pastors of the world need their own specific leadership principles. Thanks for answering this. Jamal, love your question. So here's my take on that. See what you think. But I would say leadership is the same no, ma no matter where you're at. I think the principles, yeah, there are slight variations, but I really think if you focus on what is the same, you will probably do a lot better at life. So I'm going to focus in because our guest is Patrick Lencioni. I was thinking about how do I answer this? Because I have literally tens of thousands of words on leadership. So how do you distill it? Well, Pat was asked to do that many times over. And in his last book, The Ideal Team Player, he boiled it down to three words. He said, the great leaders, the really great leaders are these three things, humble, hungry, smart. Humble, humility is, is really a rare characteristic in leadership. And uh, I think it gets you far. So humility is teachability. It is a willingness to say you're wrong. It's not valuing yourself too highly. It's putting the team ahead of you. And it doesn't mean that you feel bad about yourself. I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. God may have gifted you immensely. It's just thinking of yourself less. So I would say, number one, be humble. Number two, hungry. That's your drive. That's your like, wow, I'm ready to go. And what I, what I think about my own staff, and you know, obviously I've been in the senior leader seat my whole leadership life, so I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the other chairs. But when I look at the staff that I really admire, they're hungry. They're self-starters. They want to learn. They have a can-do attitude. When they get knocked down, like when they make a mistake, they don't grovel in it. They get back up again. And that's sort of the hungry part. It doesn't mean like a blind, selfish ambition. It just means you're hungry to advance the cause that you're working on, the mission of the church or organization. So humble, hungry, and smart. Now, um, we'll link to this in the show notes, but Pat Lencioni in his own podcast, he's got a great podcast, does a whole episode on these three characteristics. But by smart, he doesn't mean IQ, he means EQ. And I think that's a really important differentiator in the workplace. Like, do you have the ability to work with people? Do you have the savvy to try to figure out, okay, where do I speak up? Where am I quiet? So, uh, and also, do you have the ability to really nurture the team that you're responsible for? And so when I look across the organization and I see whether that is a volunteer who doesn't get paid or whether that is somebody who's an intern or whether it's someone who, you know, is at a mid-level in leadership, if they are humble, hungry, and smart, 
Uh, I agree with Pat. Those are the characteristics that just translate across the board. So I really think, and you know what? When you are the senior leader, you are the one most likely to forget those. That's actually what Pat's next book, The Motive, is all about. It's a fantastic book just about CEOs who get it wrong and why they get it wrong. And they lose their humility. They lose their hunger. And sometimes they lose their intelligence as well, their their emotional intelligence. So Jamal, I really hope that helps. And uh, keep your questions coming, guys. Just use the hashtag AskCarrie on any of the social platforms. We will peruse the interwebs for that stuff and uh, bring you some great questions. So we do that in the end of every episode. Really appreciate you guys. Episode 300 is next with N.T. Wright. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.